Welcome to the Marketing That Generates podcast hosted by yours truly, Lauren Powell. For over a decade, I've partnered with business owners around the globe to create and implement their digital marketing strategy. Working together with their teams, we generate more leads, more customers, and more revenue. I'm here to make your business growth simpler by making online marketing simpler. Every week, I'll be interviewing other business owners about the strategies that are keeping their marketing relevant in the long term, so they're not hammered by monthly algorithm adjustments. So are you ready to generate more leads, better leads, and more sales-ready leads online while making the most of your oh-so-valuable time? Then this is the podcast for you. Are you tired of being promised the magic pill that's going to solve all your online marketing challenges? Well, this podcast does not promise quick overnight fixes, nor a one-size-fits-all marketing formula. Instead, it will empower you to think differently and more strategically about your marketing so that you get better results. So whether you're a business owner, solopreneur, or an aspiring entrepreneur, listen in and subscribe for zero fluff and actionable takeaways. And for bonus resources, go to marketingthatgenerates.com. In our current podcast series, I interview the owners of four very different email marketing businesses, and we dive deep into their marketing. Today's episode is the second of that series, and I interview Summer Oves, based in Pakistan. Summer is an incredible email marketing strategist and copywriter who specializes in SaaS and e-commerce. She's worked with big name brands like Drip, HubSpot, and Pinterest, to name a few. I guarantee you'll listen to this episode and walk away with at least one idea you can apply to your own email marketing, even if you don't have a business in those two industries. Summer shares so many email marketing ahas along with her journey as an entrepreneur. Listen in and don't forget to visit the show notes for all the links to this episode. Summer, thank you so much for joining. Thank you for having me. Yeah, you've built this incredible business helping SaaS and e-commerce brands increase their sales and make more money from their email marketing. And first of all, you have a pretty impressive (laughs) client list, but I'd love for you just to start by sharing with our listeners why you think email marketing is such a powerful tool for the businesses that you work with. Yeah, absolutely. So I could give you the data and the stats and all the reasons, right? But I want to share what, what email has enabled me to do with my business. And I feel like personal stories are the most powerful way to convince people. And way back in 2020, I started the Emails Done Right newsletter. And everything good that has happened in my business since can be traced back to that newsletter. I was extremely diligent in the beginning, right? So for 10 months straight, when I launched the newsletter, when I started it, I was sending out an email every single week. And... My list growth has been organic. So for context's sake, it's still only 1,800 people, right? But when it was maybe about 120 people, somebody from Litmus was on my list. And when they sent out a call for speakers when the pandemic hit and they went virtual, they emailed me asking me to pitch pitch them a talk idea, right? And me being me, I was like, okay, the world is going online. I'm going to pitch as many conferences as I can. And so I was a little over smart. I sent Litmus two ideas and they said, can you please do both? We love both ideas. And I said, yes. <laughs> and the free, and then I freaked out, but I said, yes, right? Somebody at Pinterest saw those talks. And a year later, when they were redoing their notification strategy, they reached out to me and that's how we ended up working together. Similarly, like there's so many instances that I can trace back to my newsletter 
where like they will say, oh, we're, we're on your list. And we saw that email. Uh, when brands reach out to me, uh, there's a very famous fight in my newsletter that I pick where I say abandoned cart emails are creepy. Now, when brands reach out to me, they're already convinced that their abandoned cart emails are creepy because I talk about it in my newsletter and they are on my newsletter and they are receiving my emails. And so my newsletter has not only helped with attracting clients, but, but in also educating them. Right. So I my sales conversations have gone from me trying to convince them to leads being already convinced that they want to work with me. And so from a business owner's perspective, from a freelancer's perspective, email has been a game changer for me. That is incredible. And I just love that story. I mean, to trace, (laughs) first of all, to secure two talks with Litmus (laughs) from your newsletter is pretty dang impressive. But then to be able to say, I landed Pinterest because of it and trace almost everything back to your newsletter I think is a really great testament and for leads to be more sales ready. Oh my gosh, what a dream come true for any business to be able to say, let's speed up the sales cycle just using email. Yeah, absolutely. So Summer, one other thing I want to ask you is you mentioned personal stories. And I think that a lot of the brands you work with are brands, not personal businesses or personal brands. And so how do you kind of marry that approach of personal storytelling in email marketing to create more compelling emails for some of the brands you work with? Is there, I don't know, I I guess I'm just curious because sometimes people might feel like that's in conflict a little bit with how you approach email, especially like thinking about abandoned cart emails. It's creepy. (laughs) (laughs) Like, how do you make that feel less? And I've seen that email of yours, which is fabulous. But how do you make that feel less creepy, less organizational and more personal, I guess, if you will? Yeah. So it's still storytelling, whether I'm doing it for a SaaS business or an e-commerce business. It's just a different kind of story, right? It's easy in the e-commerce world because every brand has a story. Every founder has a story or something that I can pull from to create a narrative, right? But in, in for SaaS companies, what I do is I focus on the user. What story does the user have? And we, we have those, right? When we're doing our voice of customer research and we're doing, when we're talking to their customers and running these service, these stories are popping up in the responses. And so we know we might not have, like we might not be singling out one person or telling a person's story, but we're telling a story of a problem that somebody might face, right? And so everybody who is facing that problem will feel seen and heard. I love that. And I think that's a really great reframe for anyone who's listening about how can you use storytelling in your emails if you're an organization and not a personal brand or there's not necessarily a personal origin story to the brand's creation. So can you tell us a little more about your services and and how you help companies with their email marketing specifically? Yeah, absolutely. So as I said, I work across two industries, SaaS and e-commerce. For SaaS companies, I specialize in onboarding and retention. And for e-commerce companies, I specialize in lifecycle emails, which are the automated email sequences that you set up and then forget about. What I do is across both industries, my email philosophy and the way I approach emails is the same. We put our customers first, right? So yes, I always tell my clients, you, uh, you are working with me, but I am working for your clients or your customers or your users. So I am going to be approaching everything from their perspective. 
and making sure that we are serving them. And so for onboarding, that looks like, you know, we need to onboard with long-term retention in mind from the starting point, because I could build like an onboarding that gets them through, you know, that gets a, that turns a free user into a paid user. But if we are not writing those emails or creating that onboarding sequence with retention in mind, people are going to churn out and then you're going to have a churn problem later down the line. And so, I mean, churn is natural, but if you do your onboarding right, it'll stay low. So for e-commerce especially, I focus on building these email experiences, right? And it starts from the moment somebody lands on their website and opts in for the sign-up offer. And then I'm making sure that whatever promise was made in the opt-in offer is carried over to the welcome email that goes out, right? Similarly, the abandoned cart emails aren't creepy. The post-purchase experience is something that they make, that will make the customer feel good and confident in the decision to buy because buyer's remorse is highest. Like it, it, it follows so closely after that initial excitement of buying something. And then you're thinking like, did I really need to spend $70 on candles? But if you are sending them emails that are talking about, you know, that are A, validating their decision to buy, B, talking about all, like keeping them updated with their order, like where it is, how to track it, all of that, and C, giving them care instructions and how to use it, right? Candles, if it's a specific scent, you can talk about when to light it, what kind of mood it will set, and then just use imagery in your emails to just really build that excitement and set that stage in your customer's mind so that when they do get those candles, they can't wait to light them up. I love that. So in both industries, I'm hearing parallels of begin with the end in mind and how can you increase customer lifetime value and customer loyalty really because retention and keeping someone around in SaaS is not unlike keeping someone buying from you again and again in e-commerce or buying from you and keeping the item versus returning it. Yeah, absolutely. It's a lot easier to retain customers than to acquire them. And it's a lot cheaper as well. It is. And I love that you talk about the post-purchase experience because I, I'm kind of a marketing nerd. <laughs> so every time I buy something, I always look at the email that comes after it um, when I buy something online. And I just like have this swipe file of emails that like are just so delightful and surprising post-purchase when you buy something and aren't only transactional or they tell the story of the product that's coming and they get you excited for it coming. I just think it's a really great opportunity to stand out and also sometimes to deliver uh, an upsell, cross-sell, et cetera. So um, I just, I think that's a really smart approach on your end and just a really great way to stand out versus taking that same old, same old, hey, you purchased something. Hey, it's coming. It's here. Goodbye. (laughs) Oh my God. That is just, so those are like Shopify cookie cutter emails, right? Yes. And one of the first things I tell my clients, like, let's modify those. Like, let's brand them out with brand tone and voice and all of that and change the email copy so that the email experience is still the same for the user, right? If they've bought something from the welcome flow and we've been like really on brand with our stuff, like we've we've set the tone, we're coming across, like our personality is coming across and then they buy something and they're getting that cookie cutter Shopify order confirmation email. And that's a disconnect right there, right? That, that again, that buyer's remorse is going to crop up because we were awesome and amazing until they bought from us. And that's not what we want. 
Yeah, it's important for there to be congruency in the marketing experience and the sales experience. And I think sometimes you it's clear to see when that's missed where you're like, oh my gosh, this brand has amazing marketing. I want their stuff. And then you're like, oh, oh, this is, feels like a completely different experience than I thought I was going to get. Like the front end looks so great and shiny and the back end. Oh yeah. Oh my so God. Yes. It's all, it's always, if the back end is a mess, customers are not going to come back. Yes. Yes. So, okay. So I have a couple of questions for you based on what you shared. So can you just tell our listener a little bit what you mean about the creepy abandoned cart sequence in a summary. And then I will make sure to link that in the show notes so they can read the whole thing. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. So when you abandon, like when you browse something, add something to cart, and then you leave the website a couple of hours or four hours or six hours later, you get an email saying, Hey, you forgot something. Right. And sometimes you'll have the I emoji in the subject line. And that just makes me feel unsafe in my inbox. And I'm a marketer who knows what's going on. But what this does is it's essentially you're telling your customers, hey, we were watching you. We know you were on our website and you left without buying something. That's not the feeling you want to invoke in somebody you're hoping that buys your stuff, right? So instead of saying you forgot something, make it conversational, right? So if it's a shoe brand, you could say, we love your taste in shoes. Now, I am not denying that abandoned cart emails are a little creepy by nature, but we don't have to highlight that, right? If we are approaching it from a conversational point of view, because remember, no matter how big your email list is, there is only one person across the screen that is reading your emails. So if it's conversational, it'll come across a lot more friendlier. So that's shoe brand, right? Hey, we love your taste in shoes and I think you'll love these too. Or we love your taste in shoes and we're saving them. Should we save them for you, right? And one of the things, easiest ways of like elevating the abandoned cart experience is just asking if they meant to abandon the cart because sometimes people do. Um, there's a hilarious tweet out there where somebody's saying, I added $70 or some, some amount of dollars worth of things to cart only to remember that I don't have the money. And like happens to the best of us. And so if people sometimes do mean to abandon a cart, and so as a PS at the bottom of your email, just add, hey, did you mean to abandon it? card, we do that too. Just click here so that we don't bug you anymore. I love that. Like a soft opt out of that particular sequence, but rather than all emails. Exactly. And so, you know, that way you're making sure that, you know, if anybody's interested beyond that point, then they're definitely interested. And if they're not, they can opt out with a single click. And what the only thing that a single click does is take them out of that automation for a certain amount of time. The next time that they'll abandon a card, it'll be, it'll start all over again. So it's not like you are taking them out of the flow forever. I love that. I think that's really brilliant. And I also love the reframe and repositioning of the abandoned cart email where it feels more conversational and less like, hey, we're big brother stalking you (laughs) (laughs) and let us pressure you into buying this thing that maybe you intentionally abandoned. Oh, yeah. And I have a guilty confession. I frequently abandon carts, but it's only because I want to see <laughs> what they're going to send me after I abandon the cart. I want to know, like, are you going to send me a discount? What kind of email am I going to get? Yeah. And then I just wait and see. And I'm like, okay, that's what they sent me. And then I'll go forward with the purchase. But that's my like 
Yeah, yeah again. Okay. <laughs> so because I am so gung-ho on abandoned current emails, I keep trying these new things, right? And I have tried a second PPS saying, hey, would a discount help? And if they That's click on it and great. say yes, then I straight away, I send them a discount instead of sending more abandoned current emails, right? So like when you put yourself in your customer's shoes, you start thinking about what is relevant to them and not relevant to your brand. Yes. That is when you start identifying the gaps in your email journey. Which is where you're making your brand more important than the customer, basically. I think that's fascinating. And I think what's interesting about that is ultimately what's good for the customer typically is what's good for the brand long term. It's just hard sometimes to see it right off the bat. Exactly. So when I'm talking to brands, I'm always like, listen, email is a long game. Yes, there will be short term gains because, hey, email does make money. But if you want to if you want your customers to come back to you again and again and again, we need to put in the work and set up some solid foundations. Otherwise, your your people are going to forget about you very soon. It's a hard conversation to have. I, I have to be a lot more tactful, but it is something, it is a message that I do need to put across if I want to do right by my clients. Yeah. And I think it's really smart because it aligns expectations. And the reality is whether we like it or not, whether we want to have this conversation or not, like there's a lot of competition out there. The inbox, uh, social media ads is a competitive place. And so you know, letting people know, letting your clients know that they'll forget about you <laughs> if, if we don't stay top of mind, I think is an important conversation to have. Yeah, for sure. Like I recently worked with a brand that was just sending discounts every single week to make money from their emails. Right. And they came to me saying our email revenue has plateaued. And when I looked at their email, like you think, but <laughs> when I, when I did an audit, I realized that they had evergreen offers that were not expiring that we could continue highlighting, right? So they had a taster pack for first-time customers because they were a snack brand. They had um, a subscribe and save option for people who wanted to, you know, continue getting their snacks regularly. And then they had like another offer for like their bulk bags, which were their really big bags for families. And I was like, you already have these amazing offers. You don't need to make new offers. Let's just highlight these. And then we can segment based on audience and who's bought what, right? So if somebody's bought the, t if, if they haven't made any purchase yet, if they aren't a customer yet, we give them, we promote the taster pack to them so that they can buy, try, and then come back for more, right? For customers who have bought the taster pack, we then push the subscribe and save. And for customers who are on our subscribe and save, um, offer, we push the bulk bags to them because they love our product. And if a holiday is coming up or um, it, summer was here, right? So road trips are huge. You buy bulk bags to share. And so it's all connected to the buyer's journey and even their email journey. And you just have to put on your strategy cap on, think a little bit longer than usual, I feel. But the answers are all right there. I... I'm just listening and nodding my head over here. You can't see me since this is an audio interview. But yeah, I mean, how many times do you see that death by a thousand coupons? And you wonder like, how sustainable is that for the business? And how much demand are they really driving? And are those customers sticking around? Or are they just purchasing for the coupon? And so to really highlight 
basically, you know, meeting yeah. the customer where they're at and with what they need, I just think is much more effective long-term and is a sequence that's going to have a lot more longevity and drive a lot more revenue. Absolutely. Okay. I will say one more thing. A lot of brands now think that I am anti-discounts and I am, <laughs> but my whole thing is discounts should be a reward and not a bribe. So I'm all for offering a discount for a second purchase. I am all for offering a discount if somebody refers you to a friend or something, right? So they get 20% off and your friend gets 20% off and that's great. But it's a reward after somebody does what you want them to do at full price, right? Which is buy at full price. And so there's a place for discounts. I never say no to like sign up discounts for newer brands that have less than 15,000 subscribers. I mean, of course, they need to build their list. They need that initial base to start making money from emails, right? And I'm okay with that. But when I work with smaller brands, I almost always say, we need to come up with a number. As soon as you hit that number of email subscribers, we need to have a discussion on your sign-up offer. And so there's a place for discounts. I'm just not convinced that it's always the opt-in offer. I love that. And I just want to highlight that one sentence you said discounts are a reward, not a bribe. And I think that's a really great reframe for anyone who's listening to think about how am I using discounts in my business? Am I using them to bribe <laughs> new prospects? Or am I using them to reward people who take action the way I want them to take action, whether it's a customer or a repeat buyer, or they fall into some other bucket? Okay, so you mentioned list size a little bit, and I'd just love to ask, are there certain milestones you like to see in place before a brand or a SaaS company is ready to reach out to you and get your help? Like, is there a certain list size? Is there a certain revenue size? Is there a certain number of emails in place and segments in place? So you have something to audit? Okay. So I've worked with companies, SaaS companies and e-commerce brands of all sizes, right? But I will say this, if you are, if you're a SaaS company that doesn't have paying users, I am overkill for your business. You don't need me because at this point you are probably looking at cold outreach and I don't do that. Right. But as soon my job starts when somebody either like gets on your list or signs up or you have a content marketing program that you want to push free trials to. Right. So you need to have a product that is making you some monthly recurring revenue before it you can come to me. If you're too early stage, I'm I'm too I'm overkill for you at this point, right? But having said that, I have had newer startups come back to me saying we're still pre like we're still we haven't gone live yet, but now we have seed funding and we can afford you. That has happened. But it didn't happen until like I turned them away the first time. And so they waited. They understood why I was saying no to them because they didn't have the funds at that time. And whatever funds they did have, it did not make business sense to spend it on me. And I feel like this is this this might be what sets me apart because I come in as a partner. I am looking out for my client. I do not want them wasting their money on me when I'm not needed at that point. I won't be able to do as much good. Right. For so it's not about how many emails you have. It's just about you having a the product and the funding, basically, for SaaS companies. For e-commerce brands, I love I have a thing. 
I love working with uh, women-owned and POC-owned brands, right? And those are traditionally bootstrapped. They are often early stage. They don't have enough um, subscribers, and that's okay. I still work with them, but it's a different price point, right? So my thing is, at this point, you don't need the entire email journey mapped out and your entire lifecycle emails written. You just need the simple emails in the beginning that will start making you money from your emails when you do go live or like from your tiny list. So for them, it's, you know, the scope is a lot less, which is how they can afford me. For bigger brands, ideally, you need to have at least 10,000 subscribers for me to come in and make a difference for you. I love that. I think it's really helpful for anyone who's listening and wondering, is my business ready for summer? And I also just want to say, I love your passion for working with businesses that are female owned or POC owned. I just think that's really beautiful. And um, I don't know. I think that's special. Thank you. I, I, the stories you hear from founders, A, inspiring, B, eye-opening. And so those are not my stories to tell, but it's like I I do whatever I can to support them. Yeah. There's this business here in Denver where I live, and I should send them to you. I don't know them, but I'll just send you their website. But I just want them to have like the best emails in the whole world every time I see them. They are a candle company, uh, <laughs> female-owned. And they, you know, make these beautiful candles that are out of recycled wine glasses. They have unique names, but everyone who pours the candle is typically in their warehouse is typically um, previously homeless or in recovery. And they sign each candle. It says poured by and then it says a name and they hand sign it. And it's just the most beautiful candle. I've given them uh, so many gifts and I just want them to tell that story in their email. I'm like, please tell me more. Like, oh my God, <laughs> I love that. Time I purchased it. So here's something I've noticed after working with numerous women owned brands, right? They're all either solving a big problem, a very real problem, or they're helping their community. I don't know what it is about being a female founder that that's just wired to help. I, where I go, but I'm not a mom but is like it's like this motherly instinct to think beyond yourself but I don't know I that's really fascinating though from a trend yeah. standpoint I mean that's not to say that like other brands that are owned by men are, aren't doing that but in my experience with the brands that I've worked by far the, the female founders are solving problems and helping people or their products definitely are yes so let me ask you a little bit about the origin story of your business, Summer. How did you, why did you start your own business? How did you get into email copywriting? What did that look like for you? Oh, so I started as a content writer way back in 2008, right? So I got graduated, got married and moved to the UAE within 10 days of these things happening. And <laughs> I had no family in Dubai when I moved and I used to get so bored but I was a blogger back back home in Pakistan, and I had written an article like I was going out with a friend um, to a stand up comedy show, and she was an editor for a Sunday magazine, and she ended up having to cancel on me last minute. And she said, "If you're still going, can you please write me a review because that's what I was supposed to do. That's why I was attending." And so I did. I wrote a review as a favor to a friend. And I forgot about it. But two weeks later, there was a check in the mail. 
right? And I'm thinking if there's money and writing in a country like Pakistan, there's definitely bound to be something in the vibe. And so I run a Google search for writing jobs online, find a website that's paying me $10 an article, um, and I'm ecstatic, right? I feel like I'm going to be so rich. But it didn't take me long to realize what I'd really found was a content mill. But that just sparked my freelancing bug, right? And I grew from there and I got into content marketing and um, I used to specialize as a uh, blog writer and an ebook writer. And I worked with startups and I got published in, uh, in Copy Blogger and worked with a bunch of startups and like entrepreneurs like Paul Jarvis. And so slowly I built that business. But eight or nine years later, around late 2017, I was burned out. And I, you know, I was... I. I couldn't figure out why I wasn't enjoying my work anymore. And I thought it was because maybe I wasn't charging much. And so around that time, Joanna Weeb of Copy Hackers launched her 10x freelance copywriter program, which is focused on like rest- on building your freelance business. It doesn't teach you how to write copy or anything, but it teaches you how to run a business. And I signed up for that. Um, and I met the amazing Val Geyser in there. And she was doing emails at the time. And Taking Joe's course made me realize that I was burned out and I was done writing content, right? But because writing had been the only thing I had ever been good at, I knew that like I need to continue writing. So if not content, then the answer was copy, right? And so I started trying my hand at different types of copy, pretty much cried my way through sales pages, website copy, landing pages. But when I met Wow. She inspired me with her email passion so much that when she put out a call for subcontractors, I was, I think, the first in line to say, hey, you know, I'm trying new things and trying to find my copy niche. And like, I would love if you would take a chance on me. And she did give me two weeks to write a a re-engagement campaign. And two weeks later, when I submitted it, I knew I'd found my passion. Wow. Okay. There's so many parts (laughs) of that story. First of all, I just want to say like graduating, getting married and moving to a new country in 10 days is wild. (laughs) I can't imagine. And what a fortuitous event with your friend who canceled on you for the comedy show. (laughs) I know. Although I'm sure it was disappointing, but like connecting the dots now probably feels like, wow, that was like an opportunity that sent me down this path. Absolutely. Like it was extremely awkward for me to go alone, but because I knew she needed to cover that event, I didn't want to say if you're not going, I'm not going. And so I was like, yeah, that's okay. I'll still go and, you know, do this for you. But I remember I'm a socially awkward person. So I remember how excruciating going alone for me was. Um, But I did it as a favor to a friend and it led me to where I am today. Wow. And then I can see like, the content game, blogging, ebooks, like I bet by 2017, you'd probably like turned out a lot yeah. of content. It was all about volume, like up until that point, it wasn't yeah. necessarily quality over quantity, especially oh if God, you were yes. in the SEO game. I mean, it was just, yeah, it was brutal. So I could see the, <laughs> I could see the burnout. And you know, what's so beautiful about emails is that kind of, I won't call it instant gratification, but you know if something's working, like exactly. you're getting opens, you're getting clicks and you're getting revenue. So you can really quickly see what do I need to change? What is working well? What do I need to optimize? And so I bet that was a really nice feeling. Yeah, it's a lot. Email is a lot closer to the money, right? And, and it's a lot easier to track. 
So that was like the biggest pull for me. Like I could immediately see how well my emails were doing, whereas with my content, it wasn't always obvious, right? And I didn't have control over it either. Yeah. And like, let's talk about the business of making money. You can charge more yes. for email marketing copy than you can for a blog. Yeah. For context, I'll tell you, um, when I quit content writing, I was being paid $1,000 per blog post, a long form, and it was it would take me 20 to 30 hours, right? I made the same amount of money writing seven emails as a subcontractor working six to seven hours. Oh my gosh. <laughs> Did that feel like such a gift? Were you like, holy smokes? <laughs> I was like, what the hell have I been doing for the past seven, eight years? It was like, the, it was a eureka moment for me. Yeah. And I think someone who doesn't write for a living doesn't always realize like all the blood, sweat and tears that go into every piece. Right. And so for you to say it took me 20 20 to 30 hours to write a piece of blog content, I think really helps put it into context for anyone who's listening and does hire a writer. It's not 20 to 30 hours, like sitting down consecutively too. Like there's a lot of creating that happens and researching and anyways, wow, that's pretty cool. And I bet, I bet you really enjoy most of what you write now. Oh, absolutely. And don't feel burnout in the same way. I don't, I really don't. And I, I'm, and like, because we're talking about business evolution, over the past year, I've realized that I really, really love the strategy side of things, right? And what I realized was in my process of how I do things, copywriting is the last piece of the puzzle. It's everything that comes before it that is fun, like more fun, at least, right? So by the time I'm done with the customer research, by the time I'm done with the strategy, by the time I'm done mapping out the email sequences that I need to write, half of the copy has already been written in my mind. So by, at this point, I've written so many emails that I can just sit down and I know exactly what needs to be written. And it's it's the more you do it, the easier it becomes. And I, I've gotten to that point. Yeah. And you have so much value to bring to clients because you've written so many emails and seen so many different scenarios. Like even you just sharing earlier, hey, there's other options besides a discount to build your list and get that first buyer. I mean, that is immense value and really fast tracks things for your clients too. So I think the breadth of types of business and, and emails that you've written, not only is it faster for you, but clients are also paying for the expertise you've you know, gained along the way. Yeah, I think so. Okay. So as a strategist and coming on as a partner, it, it, that was also the one thing that I realized was such a huge change, right? As a content writer, even as a email copywriter, I was a bit of an order taker, right? Write a welcome flow or write this blog post and that's it. But as a strategist, I get to sit down and talk about their opt-in offer with them. And then I get to ask them, listen, I feel like a 25% discount on the first purchase is extremely high. Talk to me about your profit margins, Right. And all of a sudden, this is not me versus them. This is us versus the problem. And I'm looking out for my client and they immediately get that. And so, yes, it might sound like and, and I always like if you're not if you're uncomfortable sharing the numbers, then please let ju this just be a reminder that you need to protect your profit margins. I've done my job at this point. Right. I've reminded them that, yes, discounts are nice and you'll make sales. But if you're not making money from those sales, if revenue, you know, then is it even really working? You know, I'll ask you this question and you don't, you don't <laughs> have to answer it. 
that you don't want to. But I found that someone who truly sees you as a partner is okay with sharing those numbers because they know that everyone's best interest is to increase revenue and to increase profit. Yeah, absolutely. So I haven't had a single lead or client say they don't want to share their numbers with me. Yeah, yeah. I've had a couple leads who will do that with me in marketing. And I, you know, typically what I find out is that there is, <laughs> there's very little revenue or very little profit. And that's why they're uncomfortable sharing it. It's more of a, I'm embarrassed or don't want to share and less about, hey, I realize that we're partnering together to reach the same outcome. So anyways, I love that you come in as a partner and as a strategist. I just think that increases the value you bring to clients and really does allow you to solve the bigger problem, which isn't always about this one email or this one email sequence. So I'd love for you to share, Summer, you mentioned it a little bit earlier on in this interview, but how you how you get in front of new leads and new clients. You mentioned that you did some speaking engagements for Litmus. Is that your primary way of getting in front of your target audience? Okay. So I've got a bunch of avenues, right? But I will say this, it started with my newsletter and Twitter. So I, you know, when you start thinking about marketing your business, you get so much advice. Hey, you need to be on Instagram and TikTok and all of that. And I can't, my brain is not wired in a way where I can focus on multiple things. So I needed one to create one piece of content that, that I could then recycle everywhere. And I needed, I, I am, like I said, I am a solitary person. I'm socially awkward, uh, but I still need that social interaction, right? And so Twitter has historically been good to me, even in my content days. And when I got burned out, I left Twitter for a couple of years so when I started focusing on email, I was like, instead of learning a new platform, let's just go back to Twitter. And I started posting regularly, but it still took me six months to gain any kind of traction. And for those six months, the maximum likes I would get on a tweet was five and three of them would be my cousins. But <laughs> for me, it's been my newsletter. It's been Twitter. And in the last year, it's been, been it's been podcasts and work, um, doing, you know, um, webinars. So workshops, trainings, things like that. Okay. So a couple things. I think almost everyone who's listening can probably resonate with starting on a social media platform and families, yeah. <laughs> families cheering you on with likes, but yeah. uh, you feel like you're going nowhere. <laughs> Two, I love that you really knew your strengths and where you didn't want to play, because I think it can be overwhelming for people in, in terms of there are so many channels and we hear that a lot. And actually almost everyone who's come on this podcast has said, yeah, it took me, it took me a minute. And then I narrowed down on the channels that really made the most sense for me. And then I tripled down on them. So I just love that you said, Hey, I'm socially awkward, but I want one piece of content to go a long way for me. And so I'm going to use email and Twitter and then start to leverage, you know, podcasts and speaking and webinars in order to, demonstrate my authority. I just think it's really smart of you. And let me just ask because you are, well, you were in UAE and oftentimes the speaking opportunities for your target audience are across the globe. So did the pandemic really open up some virtual options for you to get in front of your target audience without having to travel as much? It did. I'll be honest, like yeah. before the pandemic, it this is going to sound so bad. But before the pandemic, for years, I've been saying, I wish the world could just stop for a few months so I could catch up. 
And then the pandemic happened and the world did stop and I accelerated to catch up. And one of those ways of accelerating was like just as soon as like conferences started going virtual, I started just sending out applications, right? And so even when I was rejected, it still helped with making those connections, right? Because I wouldn't just send a pitch and then just wait. I would go follow their organizers on Twitter and I would start engaging with them and, and reminding them, hey, when are when are you guys deciding when this, you know, the, when is the speaker list being released and so on and so forth. So I made these connections that even if I, my pitch didn't get accepted, because everybody was doing what I was doing, right? Everybody was pitching to these virtual conferences. So it wasn't always possible for me to get accepted. Litmus was like a unicorn. And um, what it did was it built relationships, which I at that at that time didn't see it as those, but I'm still in touch on Twitter with those people. Um, and it's, you know, they tell other event organizers that that are looking for speakers. And it's like, hey, you know, talk to Summer. And, or you have a podcast I and you want to talk about email. So, you know, Summer does that. So the pandemic helped. It really helped. Yeah. And again, you're playing the long game there, which is this is one short term lost pitch, but it's not a lost relationship opportunity that could translate into something else for me. And let me ask you, Twitter, do you find a lot of your target audience to be on Twitter? Meaning marketing directors, uh, growth marketers, uh, CMOs, um, people who are in SaaS or in e-commerce, but maybe on Twitter for work? Yes. And the funny thing is for the, like now I don't even tweet about email that much. It's my virtual water cooler where I will go and let off a little bit of steam when my kids are driving me insane. Right. But because I've become known as the email person and I do talk about emails, but like maybe once a week and that's it. What has happened is so many more brands and founders and marketing directors now DM me. Sorry. So Adams slid into my DMs. WordPress slid into my DMs, a bunch of other brands. Like Twitter is my biggest referral, client referral engine right now. Uh, personal referrals aren't even as big as Twitter is right now. So consistency pays off. And honestly, I've, I've come to the conclusion that content doesn't matter as long as you're being consistent. Yeah, that's funny because, well, not funny, but I found similar on my Instagram. I don't post about rarely anything work-related now. I post about three things. Um, my dogs, my husband, and our outdoor adventures. And I've found that people really like that. Like they bring them up in sales calls. They reach out to me in Instagram DMs. That's where they they jump on my email list to get the educational marketing content, but they follow me on social to get to know me as a person and whether I'm someone they want to work with. So it's interesting when you share that you're using Twitter as more of a water cooler because people already know who you are and it's clear that you work in email marketing and your email's done right. Newsletter is pinned right at the top of your profile if someone is new. So I just think that's really brilliant and also probably feels like a lot less pressure yeah. uh, to create more content for Twitter than what you're already creating for emails done right. Absolutely. I, I will say this. My uh, list growth for emails done right has been completely organic. Right. So even like whether you're on LinkedIn or Instagram or Twitter, there is a whole 
group of people out there that are trying marketing tactics. I don't do that. So my list is still only 1,800 people. But it is enough for me to sell out a course four times, have brands reach out to me about work. So the size of your list doesn't matter as much as consistency does. It's amazing that in such a small list has led to so many good things for our business. Yeah, and let's be clear, for most one-person businesses, 1,800 is no small list. You know what <laughs> I mean? True. Like, yeah. And, and I, I don't know about your team behind the scenes, so I'm, I'm using the word one-person loosely, but you. you don't need 1,800 customers to book out your services and courses. So or you don't need 50,000 customers to book out your services and courses. So I just think that two sizes relative, depending on your business, right? For one of your brands that you work with, sure, 1,800 would be a really small list. But for you, I think 1,800 organic is no small number, especially when you're thinking, hey, this is all generated organically. Like that's that's a lot of people to just sign up organically for your list. <laughs> yeah, and and like I, I do one webinar in a year to grow my list, which is when I'm launching the course, right? After that, every Wednesday when I'm picking an email fight, I'll some, I'll tweet about it on Twitter. Like, hey, the next fight is going out in like, let's say two hours. Sign up if you haven't already. That always gets me three to five to seven subscribers. But it, it compounds, right? It builds up. That's consistent people signing up when you talk about it because there's curiosity there. So I might not use your typical... Twitter marketing tactics about threads and like, hey, reply your RT to get this report or that report. But I do use my copy background to create curiosity. Yeah. I mean, that's a super skill. If I ever <laughs> heard of one, people who can write copy can create something compelling on most mediums. So I just think it's really brilliant. Okay. Then you obviously stay in touch with your leads through your email newsletter. Email's done right, which is linked in the show notes. You should definitely check it out and sign up. Summer sent out a great email today. And I don't know if it's a part of an automated sequence or not, but about how complicated is too complicated when it comes to your email marketing life cycle that I thought was absolutely brilliant. So I highly recommend signing up. But you know, how do you qualify some of the people that come your way? How do you determine whether it's the right opportunity for you or not? and them? And how do you know when someone's a good fit for your courses or for a one-on-one -on -one engagement with you? Okay. So for information's sake and to clarify, because my answer might not be your typical one, I am a brown hijabi Muslim Pakistani woman, right? So for me, I face a lot of bias and that other people don't. Let's just say that, right? And it's not always blatant, it is in somebody becoming difficult to work with and things like that. And so for me, I get on every discovery call that comes my way because I need to know it is that pregnant pause when somebody sees me for the first time. It is that raised eyebrow. It is that, oh, you wear that thing, right? Unless you are asking about cold emails or emails that fall outside of the scope of e-commerce and SaaS, that is the only time I will not get on a discovery call. But if you are e-commerce or SaaS, I always get on a discovery call. I started doing it in the beginning because, again, I mentioned I'm socially awkward. I had so much trouble reaching out to people in the industry and asking about their business and how they were running and, and asking for help generally that I was missing out on key information about 
problems businesses face, right? And so getting on every discovery call was my way of finding out what problems com- e-commerce companies and SaaS companies were facing because there was no, like in my mind, there was no other way for me to find that out. So that is a habit that has stuck with me. It started off as information gathering and it led me to realize that there was a side benefit to it. Like I could, I can tell between three to five seconds who has a problem with me or who is uncomfortable with me. And yes, having my photos all over my website has helped, but I, for some people, it's not real until they're talking to me. And so for me, I qualify after I get on the discovery call. So I just want to say, I think it's very, I mean, I honestly, I'm not sure what to say, but I think it's really must be a hard obstacle for you to face. And I'm sorry that that's the case. And I appreciate you sharing that here. Um, I know it's probably not an easy thing to share. So thank you for that. And I, I can see how a discovery call really allows you to get to know that pretty quickly, whether that's going to be an issue or not, and whether you guys can move forward on an engagement. Yep. And when I was building my business, I quickly realized that marketing advice out there, even from the best of the best, would not necessarily work for me. Mm-hmm. So my whole thing is like, if I like an idea, if I find it intriguing, I'm going to try it out and see how it works. And then I will either adapt it or discard it based on that. Yeah. And I'll just say, I personally also hop on every discovery call, even when I know someone's not qualified for different reasons than you, because there's often some way I can help them, even if it's just referring them to someone else. Exactly. We can refer them to somebody else. And what it has done is build up a referral network for me. And it's also built a lot of goodwill for me. Because I've sent companies like Shutterstock to people. And simply because it was an urgent project for them and I was booked out three months in advance. And I was like, listen, I can't help you, but I'd love to send you to somebody who possibly can. And that led to a great relationship, not only just with the marketing director of Shutterstock, but with the person I referred them to. Yeah. And you stay stuff. You still stay top of mind as someone who helped me in some way, shape or form, maybe not the initial way I envisioned them helping me, but they took me to the next step. Most of the time when people return or out, they just don't know what the right next step is and they think you're it, but you may not. Yeah, for sure. Okay. So I love everything you shared. I think it's so helpful for our listeners because one, first of all, I got a deep dive in email marketing education, <laughs> but two, part of the reason why I have this podcast is so that we can learn from other business owners in other industries, because so often we look to our own industry only for ideas. And I find there's so much cross-pollination that happens by looking outside what you're doing or what your competitor's doing or what your competitor competitor's doing. So I really appreciate you sharing and being transparent with, hey, here's where I get in front of new people. And here's how I handle my discovery calls. And here is how I stay top of mind and in front of my audience. So Summer, if there's one piece of advice you had to give another business owner who's working on their marketing, what might it be? There are two pieces of advice, actually. One, stay consistent. Even if you feel like it's not working out, give it at least three months. We are small businesses. We are freelancers. So be kind to yourself and give yourself that time and grace to see if it'll even work, right? B, to every opportunity that comes your way, Don't say no just because it's pushing you out of your comfort zone. If it's something that you know will be good for your business, 
say yes first, freak out later because you can figure this out, right? But if you say no, that opportunity goes away. And then once you're done freaking out and you're calm and you have a plan of action, that opportunity is no longer there, right? So say yes first, freak out later. And if you can't figure it out, reach out to people who can help you figure out. Beautiful piece of advice. And I'm going to ask you a bonus question. (laughs) And and if you want to share, great. And I'll share too. But is there an opportunity that comes to mind that made you so nervous that you said yes to anyways, that really helped out your business growth a lot? Oh my God, litmus. The talks for litmus. I had never done a talk before then online or offline. And, but I did it because I was like, this is it. This is my moment. I recognized it. And then uh, the good news was we had to record uh, a 30 minute talk. It took me three days to record one talk because I just kept messing it up. And it was just, and, and for that, for to pitch Litmus, we had to do a 30 minute, 30 second video pitch. I think I would qualify that as the hardest because not only is pitching an idea hard, but selling it and on a video pitch, when you've never done those before, it was just insanely hard for me. And I was a nervous wreck. But once it was over, oh, it was, you know, I was like, okay, I am over this. It's not going to be as hard the next time. It's just the first time that is the hardest. I love that. I so appreciate you sharing that because I think it is important to see on the other side of you delivering this ama- two amazing talks for Litmus, that there were a lot of nerves behind yeah. that, but the end result was worth it. And the fact that you feel like you could do it again. And I'll just say my, my opportunity was similar. It was an in-person talk and um, I had done some for my previous career in corporate, but um, this was different because it was representing my own business, you know? Ooh, yeah. I have been one coming up in October in Mexico. Ooh. And I am a nervous wreck. Like whenever I think about it, like my heart starts beating so fast. And all I want to do is like hide in a corner and maybe go and say, no, I don't think I can do it. But the tickets are booked. (laughs) (laughs) There's no backing out now. And I'm going to do it. I am going to face my fear and do it. And to get some practice, I've been offering to do talks in companies in Pakistan. So software houses usually have email marketing that they're doing in-house, right? I pitched one company and they invited me to come talk to their team. And I kid you not, my legs were shaking and the audience could see that my legs were shaking. But I did it. I got past it. And the next time around, it's not going to be as scary. No. And I think doing a dry run is so helpful. And I was going to tell you that that's what helped me the most is doing practice rehearsals in front of people. Yeah, and... I'm not the kind that will stand in front of a mirror and speak. I am. I cannot <laughs> no. look at myself. Like when I'm doing online <laughs> trainings, I will even turn off my camera because I get distracted by my own face. And so I'm like, I am the same that way. advice that, you know, stand in front of a mirror, deliver your talk, that doesn't work for me. I am sorry. I, I need to thoroughly embarrass myself in front of some real people for it to be a mistake. Oh, well, yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the mirror thing. <laughs> I think you're going to kill it. And I think just like this last opportunity, you'll find that it was so worth it and you'll be able to do it again. I know that was certainly my experience. And what I realized for me, at least when I used to speak in my corporate career, I knew 
Jack about what I was talking about. Like I was supposed to pretend to be an expert about medical devices and I had no medical training. It's so much easier to talk when you actually understand your <laughs> your subject matter and yeah. can talk authoritatively about it. So I find that helps with nerves too. It does. Yeah, I, I agree with you there. Like my confidence in my abilities to solve email problems goes a long way in helping with my nerves. Yes. Well, thank you. Summer for sharing. And where can people find you online? Where can they sign up for your newsletter and check out what you're doing on Twitter? Yeah, absolutely. So I hang out every day on Twitter. So it's, you know, you can find me at my name's handle, which is SummerOS. And emailsdoneright.com is where you should go if you want to see me pick email fights. Love that. All those links are in the show notes. So make sure to check them out. Heck yeah. You just finished another episode of the Marketing That Generates podcast. I hope you found a few takeaways that you can put into action right away. If you want more on today's episode, head over to marketingthatgenerates.com for show notes, links, bonus resources, and related episodes. Plus, if you're looking to connect with other amazing business owners just like you, be sure to join our free monthly marketing chats. You can get all the details at marketingthatgenerates.com. Thanks for listening, and I'll meet you back here for the next episode.